This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, I mentioned last week that we're reading during these last weeks of the Easter season from the final chapters, the close of the book of Revelation which is the last book of the scriptures. And I said that the great story which the Bible tells, and the Bible is not just arbitrarily thrown together, it's telling a story. The narrative is emerging. And the great story is coming to its climax. After the discussion of a new heavens and a new earth, that was last week, we have today the presentation of the arrival of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. John the visionary sees it coming down from heaven as a sort of gift. From heaven to earth comes this great gift of the heavenly city. Now, there's a massively important point that must be stressed, I think, right away here. Notice, please, we're not talking about people escaping up to heaven but rather as something coming down from heaven to take its place on the earth. Plato might have dreamed of an extraterrestrial salvation, an escape from the terrors and limitations of this lowly world into a purely spiritual realm. That's true. That's Plato's sense of salvation, that we're stuck in a kind of prison, and the idea is a jailbreak. Many mystics of a more Gnostic stripe have followed the great philosopher in this regard. That sermon for another day, but you can see it from the earliest centuries of the church up to today. This view that somehow salvation is about escaping from the world of matter. But this is just not a biblical idea. Rather, at the climax of the great story, and that's what we're witnessing here, God doesn't destroy the earth or facilitate an escape from it. Rather, he renews it and establishes his order on it. Let me say that again. This is not the story of of the destruction of matter, nor the facilitation of an escape to a purely spiritual realm, but rather the renewal and establishment of order precisely here. All the talk about a divine kingdom is finally about this, the arrival of a rightly ordered human community under the lordship of God in the midst of a renewed heaven and earth. That's the biblical vision. Notice, too, we're talking about a city. I think at times we can develop a very individualistic sense of what heaven or fulfillment means. I've arrived at my reward. 
I will look at God for all eternity. Now, there's something right in that. I have no quarrel with the idea of a beatific vision. But, but we have to contextualize it because the biblical sense of a new heavens and new earth is radically communitarian. That's why city is such an important image. Think of a bustling city, a place filled with attractions and activities of all kinds, sports, business, the arts, recreation, architecture, etc. That's the biblical image for fulfillment, heaven. We're saved together, or we're not really saved at all. Think here of the great theologian Henri de Lubac, who said that every doctrine of the church has a social dimension, including and especially this doctrine of the last things. What God wants for us is a community of love under his lordship in the midst of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. That's the biblical vision. Notice too, please, this new Jerusalem is a decidedly Israelite place. It has 12 gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed over each one. And the foundation of the walls are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles, who are themselves representative of the 12 tribes. All this represents the fulfillment of Israel's mission to be a gathering place of the world, the place to which all the nations stream. It's very interesting to me here to stay with this, this powerful image. Both walls and gates are emphasized. How come? Walls, it seems to me, for identity. Israel had a particular form. There's a way of being correctly in communion with God, a way of correctly worshiping. Walls stand for identity. But gates, gates stand for access. Again, the idea I mentioned last week. Israel was meant not for its own sake. It was meant to be the vehicle by which the world is gathered unto God, the magnet for all the nations. In that great Isaiah vision, all the tribes of the world go up to Mount Zion, because Mount Zion is Jerusalem, where God is properly worshipped. Notice how in John's vision here, the gates face in the four principal directions. We hear about the north, south, east, and west gates. Now why? Because everyone is supposed to get in. The New Jerusalem is meant to gather the nations of the world. What follows now is perhaps the most important detail. The visionary says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There's no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. The single most important element in the earthly Jerusalem was the temple. 
David brought the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city and thus made it a holy city. His son, Solomon, then built the great temple to house the Ark, and that temple and its successor lasted for a thousand years. It was the reason why Jerusalem was important and why people came to visit. Whatever else happened in Jerusalem, political life, cultural life, social life, etc., centered around the temple. So why in the world would there be no temple in the new and definitive Jerusalem, coming down as a gift from heaven to earth? Here's the short answer implied in John's magnificent vision. The answer is that the city itself had become a temple, which is to say, a place of right praise. Now, this takes us right back to the beginning of the biblical story. And again, as I mentioned last week, there's a lot of correspondence between beginning and end here. As is true, you know, in a great novel or a great short story, that the author will set up correspondences often between the beginning and the end. Same is true here. At the very beginning of the biblical story, Adam, prior to the fall, was in the attitude of right praise. That means he was mouth-to-mouth with God, ad oratio, ad ora, to the mouth of. To adore, to praise, means you've been aligned unto God. That's why prior to the fall, Adam is in a right relationship. What sin, many ways to characterize it, but I think the very best way is a suspension of right praise. To sin is to fall into the praise of the wrong things, and hence to fall apart. Read the whole biblical narrative under that rubric, and it lights up. The trouble with the, with the human race is always bad praise. And yet, as I mentioned last week, Yahweh formed a people, Israel, to be a people capable of praising him aright. Notice throughout the Bible that huge stress on the details of worship. We can say, why are they fussing with the how the temple's put together and how you're supposed to be dressed and how you bow and all that? It's not trivial at all. It's God teaching his people how to praise him. What was the temple, the heart of Israelite life? It was the place where this was most fully acted out, where the right praise of Israel was on display. Now, the point of the Garden of Eden and the point of the temple was not to turn in on themselves, but rather to Edenize the whole world. Or better now, to turn the whole world into a temple. That's what John sees at the climax and fulfillment of the story. In our financial dealings, are we ordered to the demands of God? In our business affairs, are we thinking above all of what God wants to accomplish? 
Do we see our scientific research as finally serving God's purposes? Do we express our athleticism as an act of praise to the one who gave us strength and beauty? Do our friendships and conversations serve the Lord? Listen now as John concludes. The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gave it light. What a splendid summary that is of the whole Bible. What God has wanted from the beginning is to shine the light of his love into every corner of life, into every nook and cranny of the city. The problem is that we've put the divine life, at best, under a bushel basket, allowing it to illumine perhaps one tiny aspect of our private life. And then today, increasingly, we're allowing it to go out altogether. The point is to allow the divine love to shed its light everywhere and on all things. Or to shift the metaphor again, to turn the whole city into a holy temple. That's the whole trajectory of the Bible. What John the visionary saw was none other than the fulfillment and realization of this great hope. See, friends, that's why you've got to spend time at the end of the book of Revelation. I'd encourage you to read these final chapters in a very meditative spirit, realizing it's the great story that God is telling, now reaching its fulfillment. May God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.